BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. I'm Maeve Higgins, and this is Solvable, interviews with the world's most innovative thinkers working to solve the world's biggest problems. My name is Soumya Roy, and I'm trying to solve the problem of marginalized communities by bringing the power of microenterprise and microfinance to strengthen these communities. The problem that I'm focused on is to look at communities that are in both in poverty as well as they face social exclusion and to look at how microenterprise can strengthen these communities. So we're in India today, a fabulous country that's about 10 years away from becoming the biggest in the world, population-wise. India's had this booming economy that is slowing somewhat these days, but this huge nation has seen massive improvements in the quality of life for many of its 1.3 billion citizens. The work that they've done is extraordinary, and the speed of it too. In the 10 years leading up to 2016, India lifted 271 million people out of poverty. However, the World Bank's median poverty line is $3.10 a day, and over half of India's population are stuck there, at least for now. More than 250 million people survive there on less than $2 a day. So if it takes money to make money, can't they just borrow some and clamber up the ladder that way? Sadly, no. That particular slice of upward mobility is not available to many Indians. Banks will not do it, claiming limitations like, oh, lack of security, high operating costs. But you know, there is an alternative, and that's our guest, Saumya Roy's Solvable. Microfinance provides loans to poor people with the goal of creating financial inclusion and financial equality. Microfinance can also include savings and checkings accounts, microinsurance and payment systems. It basically makes money more affordable to poor and socially marginalised customers and helps them to become self-sufficient. 
Samia Roy came to this solvable in kind of a roundabout way. She started out as a financial journalist, documenting the heyday of India's booming economy. And this one piece she was working on led her to discover whole communities that were cut out of the boom. All these neighbourhoods that were systematically denied banking services. That's called redlining. And redlining, well, it happens all over the world. It's a discriminatory practice that was actually banned here in the US 50 years ago. Redlining is basically a way of locking people into poverty. Samia wanted to do something to help, and eventually, when her father retired as Mumbai's police chief, together they set up a non-profit called the Vandana Foundation to help people that were targeted by redlining. You'll hear Samia mention a place called Daravi, which is considered to be one of the biggest slums in the world, but of course it's also an affordable place to call home in an expensive city like Mumbai. Daravi has many Dalit communities, made up of people outside the caste system, sometimes known as untouchables. We'll hear how Saumya uses microfinance to lift the people in Daravi, as well as people in other regions of India, out of poverty, in this great exchange with Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, and when she says microfinance, she means it. For context, you should know that 5,000 rupees is about $70, so 1,000 rupees is only around $14. Okay, let's get to it. You started out as a journalist, a financial journalist. Yes. Um, so tell me how one gets from doing financial journalism to becoming interested in starting a nonprofit in microfinance. Uh, by making a lot of mistakes. <laughs> so um, I was a financial journalist. I used to write about the stock market, about you know GDP and all of these things. And one of the stories that I wrote about was redlining, which exists in the US and it exists in the UK. But I wrote about it for the first time in India, which is that I got out documents from banks that said, what are the areas, the people, the communities that they don't lend to? And that was the time, I think, 2008 or so, when the Indian economy was growing at like a historic pace. Call center representatives would call up and say, do you need a loan for a holiday? Do you need a loan for a wedding? Do you need a loan for your education? And if the person on the other side said, yes, I would, and they would say, okay, great, so where do you live? And if they said they lived in an area that was dominated by Muslims, often, you know, depending on the communities that you belong to, where you lived, they would say, no, I'm sorry, so we can't give you a loan. I often went to Dharavi and I found that it, there were almost a million people living there and not a single bank branch. And if you went any, to a bank branch elsewhere and said that you belong to Dharavi and you needed even to open a bank account to keep your own money, they would say, no, sir, if you belong there, we cannot open a bank branch for you, for you to keep your own money. So, um, and, the, and the other aspect was, I wrote about India's farm crisis and well, farmers who committed suicide in spite of owning 10, 20, 30, 40 acres of land. And I often thought that with my meager reporter's salary, if I ever have the money, I would like to do something to resolve this. And yet, you know, journalists, we think in terms of problems, we don't think in terms of solutions or solvables, as you call them. So I waited a few years. I remember I had got an award from the Asian Development Bank for a story I did, and it was some a princely sum of $500. And I saved it for two or three years, thinking that, okay, if I have an opportunity, I would like to spend it to, to in some way, resolve issues like this. And then in 2010, my father retired from the government, and we decided that we would start a nonprofit together, where we would work on financial inclusion. As in strengthening these communities where nobody opened their bank account, nobody opened, gave them credit cards for business purposes. And if I wanted one for a holiday to Europe, I could get a loan. 
And so we decided to open a non-profit that worked on this. And we also worked in rural areas where they faced very similar problems. So tell me a little bit about all the reasons why particular communities would be either ill-served or not served by existing financial institutions. Because I'm assuming it's some combination of attitudes on on the part of the financial institutions, but also characteristics of the community themselves. Yeah. So it is what I would call othering. It's the bank's call. At that point, there was not much data available. Like today, data science makes it possible for us to say who can repay and who cannot repay. But at that point, they didn't have any great empirical data to say so. And so it was just a fear. We don't want to step foot in this place. It's a ghetto. We don't feel we can find addresses in this place. The lanes are too narrow even for the sun to get in. We don't want to send our people there because they could be in harm's way. And so they didn't extend their services there, not based too much on any data. Because in fact, we find that today, if you see India's economy today, corporate defaults are at a historic high. So all the people that banks were lining up to give loans to have defaulted on their loans, left the country, and they now live in Europe, having defaulted on thousands of crores of loans. Banks have no way of getting that money back. And yet they they targeted the poor saying that, oh, we don't feel they would get that money. So you're identifying a couple of different strands of misinformation and prejudice on the part of the institutions. One is that they're simply don't know the communities, don't know how to navigate them. And the second thing is that they have a, an intuition, which is that uh, getting people to, to, be, to repay their loans will be more difficult in these communities. Do they have no empirical support for that sec- second of those institutions? So that has changed. Over the last 10 years, the for-profit microfinance sector has stepped in and it's become big. It's sort of fairly well regulated. And now we have credit bureaus even for the poor. So we do report our data to the credit bureau. We have a fair granular data in terms of who repays, who doesn't repay. There are also uh, national identity cards through which subsidies go in. So that has changed a lot in the last 10 years. But, but yes, at that point, that was the case very much. So. But now, so what is empirically the state of our knowledge about the credit worthiness of poor communities? What is it? Yes, we know how much, lend, how many loans they have. We know if they've defaulted on loans. We, they, have a, they also have a credit rating. So, uh, you know, sometimes they'll even try to game this. They know what, they have a sense, they have a degree of, sophist- they have a slightly sophisticated sense of what is their credit rating. And that, that drives consumer behavior as well. They know that in order to get their next loan or to get a higher ticket loan, they need to maintain their credit worthiness and they do what it takes. Having said that, access to credit for, say, Muslims, for uh, Dalits, for scheduled castes is still not comparable with what it is for upper caste Hindus, etc. Yeah. So even if I provide a financial institution with data showing which people in a particular community are credit worthy, that's not going to be sufficient to get them to serve that community as well as they do other communities. Yes. So there's a, there's a, there's a bias on top of um, a suspicion about creditworthiness. Yes, I would say so. First of all, if you were to have done nothing, yes. if no nonprofits were stepping in, would this problem naturally resolve itself over time? Do you think the banks would eventually come around? So, so what happened was that, as you know, uh, Grameen became a huge success in the microfinance space. And since the time when we started, when we started in Mumbai, there were hardly one or two microfinance companies. But then this sector became very big in the for-profit space. 
So there is a lot of lending now. Many of them have become banks. They've become small banks. They've raised private equity money and successfully returned it. Having said that, do I see the lives of the poor having changed? Not necessarily. The lives of the poor remain in many ways just as fragile. There are studies to show that many of these loans become consumption smoothening loans. Um, they go into, say, medical expenses, educational expenses, emergency expenses. We don't see the kind of asset creation or them. And it's something that bothers me as well, that I don't necessarily see the poor becoming rising to the middle class or the lower middle class. Any um, blow that comes, like, say, in the form of demonetization, really does get them back to the ground as they were before. Yeah. So describe to me your the particular niche that you're operating in as uh, this nonprofit you're involved in, what is it? So you're trying to address a specific part of this problem. Yes. So our ticket sizes of loans are the smallest in the industry in India by far. Um, the average ticket size in, in India would be about 25,000 rupees for lo per loan. We started 5,000. So we are specifically targeting poorest of poor. About 80% of our borrowers are Muslims. Then in the rural area where we work, we specifically look for widows of farmers who committed suicide. In the last nine years, our work has grown. So while they may not all be widows, we also have at-risk women like who have whose husbands have defaulted on loans, they're working on farms, they may be single mothers for different reasons. So we are looking for the most vulnerable communities. We work a lot with waste because who work on the landfill of Bombay. So we definitely look for the most vulnerable of communities. And apart from microfinance, even to make them credit worthy, we give them everything from, say, uh, counseling to microenterprise training. I remember when we worked with widows, we, we wasted months and months with us saying, hey, we have a grant. We can give you money. Why don't you start a business? And they, having faced years and years of abuse and depression and vulnerability, said, we can't do anything. What do we do? Even if you give us the money, we have no way of doing anything. We just endlessly do weeding and deweeding on farms. Mm -hmm. So we started classes for them that, hey, here's what you can do. And once they started, almost all of them have been highly successful. So describe your typical um, loan applicant and then tell me the ways in which they're, uh, with your help, their life might change over the course of get after the course of getting yeah, that loan. I'll tell you. I'll take a rural example if you don't mind. So we have many of these widows. Uh, we've picked widows particularly. You think that they would be old, but many of them are very young. They're between twenty and forty years old. Often they'll have two children or more. They will be looking after their their parents-in-law who are typically old and frail. Uh, when we'll spend months and months telling them you should do something, they'll say we can't do anything. We've had many women calling us. Uh, when we call them, they say, please don't call us because you're going to push us to do something and we can't do anything. So one or two, we've had a few who've dropped out for that reason. And eventually when we'll push them and there's, there'll be a lot of motivation, a lot of uh, counseling, everything. And when they agree, just that act of stepping out of the house to take our loan or to take a grant, Sometimes we've even given small grants when we feel they don't even have food in the house. We've given them a grant to start with. So now they have a lot of fear in their mind that if they were to sit, let's say we've had a woman who sat outside on the street and sold glass bangles and people came and told her, you know, like, have you forgotten women are supposed to stay within the house? They're not supposed to be sitting on the street and selling bangles. And at first she stared and then she thought about everything she had learned in her class. And she said, you know what? I'm doing this to look after my children. If you if you will give me money for my house, I will stop doing it. And just the confidence to say that took a lot for her. But eventually she, being a widow, became very big in the 
marriage market as you know indian weddings are very big it'll always be bigger than what they but what the parent can afford so she started walking miles and miles to different villages saying here i can sell bangles and whatever else it is you need for a wedding and so she would walk something like 10 to 20 miles a day in spite of having sickle cell anemia she educated her daughter who's now a teacher she treated her son she treated herself she had throat cancer and uh, you know but she never stopped working through any of that because she knew that that is what was keeping her family going mm-hmm. another one has educated her son is an engineer today he works for one of the biggest auto companies in india uh, some of them had mortgaged their gold and they brought it back so i think that first step is the hardest mm-hmm. so in that case the other woman you were talking about you did you begin with a grant or a loan we began with a grant and so the grant would have been how large A thousand rupees a month. Yeah. Oh, I see. So it's an ongoing. We gave it to her for about a year. Yeah. And by the end of it, she was supposed to do something. So yeah. she has no obligations to repay this initial amount of money. No, we we actually visited her house and we saw that she had no money even to eat, and in that position to become another source of debt to her just didn't feel right to us. So instead, we said that in this one year we'll train you, we'll do anything that that you want, but by the end of this year, you need to become self-sufficient. so uh, uh, one of our people when she finally she agreed and she decided to keep glass bangles and i remember two months later we decided to visit her when we heard that yes she started her business and she had a little piggy bank in her house and she had kept all her earnings in that that in case we came she could give the money back to us wow so that's how the degree of responsibility so how in that year how long did it take her to come up with the notion that she wanted to do to sell glass bangles it took her several months at that point we didn't have an office we used to sit under a tree 30 40 women and uh, you know they would all what will you do you know it was a deadlock where we would we would have 40 women sitting around and say well, we will fund you you know with small amount of money what would you like to do and they would say we can't do anything and finally this one woman stood up and she said you know i was pregnant when my husband died and now my son is 5 years old i have to do something i don't care what anybody says and when the next time she came for the meeting and she said yes i've started i run a little like a corner shop within my own house it's running i'm earning money and i feel so confident i can face anything and that gave confidence to other women as well that yes we can do it too it's the notion this question of the the resist the reluctance to do something is it you said how much of it is a product of um just how kind of traumatic and overwhelming their lives have been and how much of it is they don't know They actually don't know what it would. I mean, you know, if you asked me to start a business tomorrow, I would take me a long time to figure out what I would do, right? How much of it is this simply that what on earth business could I do, even if I wanted to? It's both, and we tackle both. You know, when we had this deadlock, we called a trainer in, and uh, he he turned out to be very nice because uh, he actually he he said, "Let's we have a blackboard here. Write down why what what are the hurdles you face in doing a business." So some of them said, "Well, I have no ideas. What would I do? I've never done a business before." And he said, "Yeah, that's fair. It takes a different kind of mindset to be an entrepreneur." So he said he thought of the smallest of things that they could do. I think it's also a little bit of. I wouldn't lack is a very strong word, but the lack of imagination because they don't know what urban markets are like. So he gave them the most easy examples. He said, "Could you sell uh, crushed peanuts? Could you sell peeled sugarcane?" And he gave them this example. He said, "You guys in a village can just eat a sugarcane. You have strong teeth, but people in cities, 
they're not used to it. So if you were just to peel a sugar cane and sell it, you could earn so much more money. And they were just surprised, you know. Or if you just crush chilies and sell it, you could earn a lot more money. And they were just like, wow, I could do this. So he just gave them hundreds of easy ideas. Then one woman finally stood up and said, I worry, what are people going to say? And he reminded them of a Bollywood song. Uh, like people are going to say something. It's their job to say something. We don't need to worry about those people. And suddenly this room full of women was just giggling. Like he just made light of the fact that yes, that discrimination or that, that judgment is there. And hey, let's deal with it head on. So let's go back to the example of the woman with the bangles. So she gets a grant for a year, a thousand rupees a month. Then she decides at some point that she would like to, is she making the glass bangles herself? No, she's buying them from somewhere else and, and buying them wholesale and selling them on the, on the street. So you then at that point, when she has this idea, you then say, we'd like to give you a loan. Yes. How much of a loan are you giving her? Uh, we started with 5,000. She's now taken 25,000 each time from us several times. Yeah. And she, what is the term of repayment on that 25,000? It's interest free. Oh, it's interest-free. Yeah. Oh, I see. And so, but she is, so can you tell me a little bit more about how kind of credit-worthy she has been? Yeah, she's been perfectly credit-worthy. Uh, actually, in rural areas, we found people to be extremely credit-worthy uh, because also our loan is interest-free. So we do tell them, even when demonetization happened, there were a lot of politicians who came and told them, hey, uh, you don't need to repay, etc. And we told them, that, listen, our loan is interest-free. So you know, we have a bond with you. We're not doing this because we're trying to make money off of you or we are not like another money lender or something like that. So, you know, we want to have a long-term relationship with you. And when you return your money, we give it on, give it to somebody else who needs it just like yourself. Yeah. So she, is she going to be using you in perpetuity as a revolving line of credit? So we are, we are grappling with that at this point because she's been with us for now this is her ninth year. So we, she wants to graduate to bigger loans. She uh, also took a loan to take a tailoring machine. She makes sari blouses. She's very highly enterprising. So she'll have bangles. She'll have jewelry. She'll have anything that sells in the marriage market. Flowers, flower pots. Uh, every time I go, I find something new that she's selling. Um, so yes, she can take a bigger loan and she can repay it. Can she go to a bank? Would a bank be interested in her? Yeah. Maybe or maybe not. No, this is interesting because I would have thought that eventually people would graduate out of your program and the banks would see, this is a woman who's now been an entrepreneur for nine years. She can, presumably the bank can come to you and say, what is her credit history? You can tell, you can tell them what a good credit risk she has been. What would be problematic for a bank about this woman? See, banks don't always have that last mile reach. You, we've tried this in our urban project and it's done. It has been successful, but not completely successful because they, the bank will not come to your house to take the loan. The bank will tell you, come to our branch and pay the loan. If you don't repay on a particular day, we'll call you. The bank may not necessarily call you. They will just say you're a defaulter. So that last mile connectivity that we provide is not necessarily provided by a bank. Having said that, we have had borrowers who've taken bank loans and repaid bank loans as well. Is the idea to, to be the primary source of credit for a large group of people or to be constantly graduating people out into the, into the commercial credit market? Yeah, we would like to stay at the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. Those who get successful, we would like them to be bankable. We would like them to grow their businesses. But yes, this is a conundrum that we face. How do you raise the money that you, where does the money come from for your pool of capital? We get grants. 
um, and we also take some low interest uh, sort of uh, social sector loans. Like we had a loan from the Unis Social Business Fund, so that came to us at a lower interest rate. And what are your, if you look at your total pool of capital, how much of that is grants and how much of that is loans? At this point, it would be almost equal grants and low interest loans. Oh, I see. So some portion of your capital is being returned, and but the but the point of grants is always to get someone stable enough so that they are taking out loans. So it's kind of, now that's sort of super interesting that what you're doing essentially is preparing people to enter the credit market. Yeah. And also uh, sort of credit related behavior, just we already have a credit history that we create with them. Their first credit history is created with us. We have a passbook. We show them that yes, every week this person is repaying every week or they've had so many cycles of loans. Mm -hmm. So they are now credit worthy. They have the kind of behavior that you would like from a borrower. What are the most surprising things you've learned over the course of that nine years? I mean, I'm guessing what you're doing now does not match your expectations of what you thought you would be doing nine years ago. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, so, so in the rural project, what surprised me was that the most difficult step was the first step. There was a lot of exclusion. There was a lot of uh, even abuse. There was a lot of like, oh, if your husband is dead, you no more have anything to do with us and we can treat you any way we like. While I knew that it existed, I think it was more than what I thought it was. And that made that mountain in their mind tremendous to come out of that, to do something, to fight that, that fight that, yes, I can do something and I will do it. To have that confidence was the most difficult thing. Having started, very few have failed. And you going in thought it would be the reverse. Yes. In urban areas, what has surprised me, and I, I mean, I could be wrong, but this is my personal experience. I feel that urban poverty lacks dignity and it has, there's a tremendous fragility to urban poverty. Even with our loans, what disappoints me is I don't necessarily see people getting to the next stage very easily because there's very little social security in India. So one illness or, you know, or like a wedding can just wipe out their savings. I remember we had this we had this one woman who was a fruit seller in Bombay and on a handcart she used to sell fruit and she was doing very well we paid her three we gave her three or four loans and one day I was just walking through her community uh, and uh, I, I saw her standing there in her fruit cart and it was totally empty so I got very upset with her I said well, what are you doing and she just started crying and she was a middle-aged woman I said what is why, why are you crying and she said you should have come a week ago why did you come today I had so much fruit but you didn't come then so I said well, what did you do with all the money she said you know my father he died in Hyderabad and uh, we had my, my brothers told me that uh, she we need to do the funeral immediately so I used all the money I had I took a flight and I went to Hyderabad and she was very proud of it that she thought what better use could my money be that I could go for my father's funeral and if I didn't have this money I couldn't have been able to attend it so small, I wouldn't say this is a small thing, but like medical expenses or wedding related expenses, educate, they're very aspirational to educate their children. There's been a huge move from government schools to private schools, low cost private schools, and they will pay whatever it takes to shift their children to private schools. Mm -hmm. And the pressure for that, I feel sometimes is felt more by women than by men. You're not, you're not arguing with her choices. You're saying that that is a... That, that is the outcome that they want in, in many of these situations. I just feel that their lives are very fragile. You know, if we go into it uh, with a degree of innocence thinking, oh, I paid you 50, whatever, we gave you a loan of 50,000 rupees, by now you should have X, Y, Z. But we don't realize that they are, they are facing headwinds from really everywhere. So what, in that case of the woman with the fruit stand, what did you do next? 
we continue to lend and she's doing well now someone like her who's been running a fruit cart for so long i would think she should now have a shop she should be able to rent a shop and have a shop so that taking that next step out of poverty is just a huge step just because of all the headwinds that they face two two final questions one is give me a sense of what your a typical day looks like for you either me or my father will personally meet and interview everyone who comes for a loan uh so usually they come to our office but by the same token we do go out on the field just to see what are they up to these days i've been researching a waste picking community so i go to the garbage landfill of bombay at least every week uh, climb up try to see how, what people are picking what are they buying what are they eating in their house because even to understand their household finances it's not necessarily written neatly on a form it's also by knowing what did, what did you have for dinner last night what did you do for a festival how did you celebrate a festival could you buy clothes for the festival or uh, your medical expenses how are you meeting those medical expenses and that often helps to strengthen communities just rather than just pouring cash in that community so we do run a few after school classes i clinics so based on the feedback that we get from them we do try to resolve their problems in non financial ways as well are there things that ordinary people can do to to help i mean uh, they can they can do a lot to help first of all i think that i myself and i think anybody hearing about these women they can be inspired by these women and then yes they can get involved in any way they like whether it is by teaching by donating money by um just spreading the word around all of that The great writer Jonathan Swift said that a wise person should have money in their head but not in their heart. And that's what kept coming through for me when I listened to that interview. Also handy of course is money in your pocket and the transformative power of investing in people for the first time. That sounded so real and incredibly empowering. India remains one of the fastest growing major economies in the world and it's impossible not to watch in awe as the country surges toward a brighter future with digitization, globalization and favorable demographics but poverty is hard to shake and many people will stay stuck there unless financial opportunities are inclusive and fair. India has a chance to refuse to repeat the mistakes of other countries. Today is solvable. The work Saumya and her dad do at the Vandana Foundation, providing financial opportunities, well that can help everybody to win. Solvable is a collaboration between Pushkin Industries and the Rockefeller Foundation with production by Laura Hyde, Hester Kant, Laura Sheeter and Ruth Barnes from Chalk and Blade. Pushkin's executive producer is Mia Labelle, research by Sher Vincent, engineering by Jason Gambrell and the great folks at GSI Studios. Original music composed by Pascal Wise and special thanks to Maggie Taylor, Heather Fine, Julia Barton, Carly Migliori, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. You can learn more about solving today's biggest problems at rockefellerfoundation.org/solvable. I'm Maeve Higgins. Now go solve it.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. What's out there is unknown. So at UC San Diego, out we go. Because to take on the challenges of the here and now, you got to get your feet wet, your eyes open, and your mind out there. Way out there. Turning the unknown into cures, culture, and connections with each step forward. So pack a bag, a notebook, and some sandals, and get ready to look far and think further. UC San Diego. Learn more at ucsd.edu.